Have you ever noticed how some of the great spiritual and doctrinal truths of God's Word can be expressed in very simple fashion? I hope you picked up, as we were singing that song, on one of the great truths of God's Word. My one defense, my righteousness said as simply as possible and yet with the most incredible results. Some people believe that they will stand before God and give this defense. Well, I was very religious. I went to church every Sunday. I was baptized. You know, I I gave an awful lot to the church that I attended. You know, I kept the Ten Commandments. I did all of these wonderful things. And the judge will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Because that's no defense. My one defense, my righteousness, is all found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our one defense. He's the attorney that stands on our behalf and pleads our case before a righteous judge and says, He, she, trusted me as their Savior and I paid the price of their sin. Therefore, I have given to them my righteousness and that is their defense. The Father will say, Enter into the joy of the Lord. My one defense, my righteousness, all found in the person of Jesus Christ. I hope you know Christ as your Savior. You may be here today and have never trusted in Christ. Make today the day. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. And by simple faith, you receive him. And he becomes your defense, your righteousness. Some of you may be uh, very similar to the way I am, and that is you have to learn things the hard way. It would be wonderful if you just listened to people who were wise, people who in many cases are godly, people who understand things that we're about to experience and they see the danger that we're facing and they warn us, and they say, now here's what you need to do, but no, we have to go through it, and we have to learn the hard way. I thought of something that I learned the hard way, and it might seem like something very simple to you, but it might be something that you've experienced too. When I was learning to water ski, I actually learned how to do that in the intercoastal down here. I had come down to visit a friend after I, uh, this was when I was in high school, Um, I came down to visit him and Ed had a boat and and he said, you know, it's time you learn how to ski. And um, I said, yeah, that'd be great. And, you know, after about the 23rd, 24th effort, I was able to finally get up and then as inevitably happens, I fell. Now, anyone will tell you that when you fall, Let go of the rope. (laughs) I have to learn the hard way. 
And I hang on to that rope as if I'm going to be able to pull my skis back up under me and get up again, when in reality, all that you experience is pain. It hurts. And, and salt water. You just get a face full of water, and it's a terrible experience. All you had to do was let go. Simple, right? Sometimes in more important elements of life, letting go is not quite as simple. Followed by the name of David, who became the king of Israel, learned that the hard way. And those of you who are familiar with Psalm 32 will recognize that this is a psalm that was written after David let go of the rope. You see, what had happened is recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapters, uh, pardon me, 11 and 12, where the event in Daniel uh, in David's life is so familiar to us. But I still want to recount some of the things that happened. David had been made the king. And in that portion of scripture, we're told that it's a time of year when the kings go forth to war. And, and you have heard that David should have been out leading his troops, but instead he remained back at the palace and he was at home while his generals were out and they were fighting. They were attacking the cities in Ammon. And um, David, one evening that was very nice, walked on the roof of the palace and as he looked down, he saw a naked woman. He lusted after her, and as the king, he had the capability to do what he did. He had her sent for. When she was brought to his presence, she undoubtedly was a very beautiful woman who attracted him. And the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about this, which is good. But he lay with her. And in the process of their intimacy, she conceives a child. Word comes back to David later on that she's pregnant. David, knowing better, had to learn the hard way. He went through a series of events in an effort to try to cover up his sin. And he wanted to find out who, whose wife is this? And he learned that the fellow's name was Uriah. He was one of the soldiers in David's army, and he was a, a brave soldier. David sent for him. And in David's plan, he thought, you know, I've got a perfect way to take care of all of this. I'll bring Uriah back and a soldier coming back from the, the field of conflict who's now back home undoubtedly will go in and he will enjoy the presence of his wife. And in that process, we're going to be able to cover this thing up. And he'll believe that the child is his. Uriah comes back with a report to David about how the battle is going. And Uriah was a man of great character. Instead of going to be with his wife, he remained at the entryway of the palace. And David was troubled. Why in the world did you do this? Why, why didn't you go be with your wife? He said, how could I do that when my 
fellow soldiers are fighting and they're out sleeping in the fields and I'm going to come home and enjoy the comforts of my wife and of going back into my house. How could I possibly do that? And undoubtedly, that had to hit David. I mean, here's a man of great character in Uriah. And David has not been a man of character. At least not at this point. And Uriah doesn't go back home. And so David says, all right, what, what options do I have here? I'll get him drunk. That'll take care of it. So David invites Uriah to a feast. And David continues to serve the wine. And Uriah gets drunk. And as a drunk man, he had more character than David did. He still refused to go home. David, realizing that his plan was not going to work, decided there's only one thing left to do. This man has to die. But I can't kill him. So I'll find a way to have him die. David, by the hand of Uriah, writes a command to his general. And the command says, I want you to put Uriah at the hottest part of the battle, and then I want you to withdraw. Uriah doesn't know it, but he's carrying his own death sentence. And he takes it and gives it to his commander. And the commander, being perplexed at what's going on, still obeys what the king has to say, and he sends Uriah to a part of the battle where he is now facing the toughest men that the enemy has. And the men that are sent with Uriah withdraw, and David's plan works. Uriah is killed. He loses his life. The general, still not understanding all that's involved in this, is concerned that the king may not really grasp the gravity of what he has just done. He sends a messenger back to David, and the messenger is to carry this message. We approach the wall of the enemy, and when we approached it, we engaged the toughest men possible. And, and see, they knew, they, they knew the right tactics to use. You don't get near the wall. And, and even in the general's thinking, he realized that there was one of the, the enemy in another situation that was killed as a woman threw a rock over. So you didn't, you didn't get that close to the wall. That was stupid. So he says to the messenger... David's going to question the, the propriety of this type of, a, of an approach in our conflict. So here's what I want you to tell him. Tell him Uriah's dead. That'll take care of it. The messenger goes back to David, brings the message, says we approached the wall in this fashion. The conflict was terrible. But Uriah is dead. And David's response is so cold, so hard. Well, you know, in battle, some live and some die. 
David has plunged to the depths of sin that few people have ever gone to. And now, he needs to take care of business at home. He calls for Bathsheba, and he marries her. And while she's carrying this child of his, and as she delivers this child, something happens to David's heart. The record of what happened is given to us in two of the Psalms. Psalm chapter 51 deals with David while the pressure of his conscience begins to gnaw away at him and it is eating him up because he realizes, I have violated so much of what God has warned me about. I have lusted. I have committed adultery. I have committed murder. And he is being overwhelmed by the reality of what he has done. Which, by the way, is what needs to happen to a person who genuinely knows the Lord. If you can get away with stuff like that and it doesn't bother you, you do not know the Lord. It's that simple. But a person who knows God is going to feel the pressure of his sin weighing upon him. And David writes Psalm 51, and we're going to just take a few little snippets of that as we go through Psalm 32, because Psalm 51, though chronologically it appears later, actually deals with an earlier part of David's life. When we get to Psalm 32, things have changed. And what has changed is he has come to grips with the reality of his sin, and he has dealt with it the right way. By doing that, what he does is he gives us the pattern of the way God responds to a person who is truly penitent. A person who actually comes to realize the sinfulness of his sin and deals with it the right way. So let's take a look at it. Because what we're going to find in Psalm 32 is going to be the way that God still intends for us to deal with our sin today. And I would suspect that there's not a person in this room who knows Christ as their Savior, who has not come to a place in their life following a sin where they have not felt at least a degree of what David was going through. Would you look back with me, if you will, please, to this psalm, Psalm chapter 32, and we begin to recognize some things that are going on here in David's life. And the first thing is this. He is going to come to a place where he feels relief. And that relief is going to come as a result of his dealing with this pressure cooker that he has been in. You all know what a pressure cooker is like? You, you, you heat up this, this boiling water in this pot that is sealed, and it has an, a, a, an emergency escape so the thing doesn't blow up, but it, it creates such an incredible amount of pressure in there that it literally can become extremely dangerous if you don't handle it the right way. David is feeling that spiritually. And how did he get there? Well, he tells us in the first verse, uh, actually the first two verses that we look at here, how this all came about. He tells us about the cause of this tremendous pressure that's upon him because of his sin. He says this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man in whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So there are four things that he mentions to us here. There's transgression, there's sin, there's iniquity, and there's deceit. And each one of those deals with a different aspect of what David did and how he had behaved. When he talks about transgression, he's talking about breaking away, tearing away from that which God had established as the parameters in which a person should live in order to live a life that is honoring and glorifying and pleasing to him. David had been clearly told that he is not to lust after his neighbor's wife, he tore away. He is clearly told he should not commit adultery, and he tore away. He is verified in his thinking that murder is wrong. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, and he is torn away. And he's guilty of all of that, in addition to other things. Certainly he is not loving the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. And so David is standing there as one who has transgressed, who has torn away from all of the things that God designed to be safety features. You know what? It would be like a guy who is a, a, a skydiver. And he jumps out of the plane, and as he's on his way down, he's looking at the beauty of the earth beneath him. As it's getting closer and closer, he feels the rush of the wind going through his face. There is a sense of freedom. There is a sense of enjoyment that he's experiencing. But there's a problem here. This stinking parachute is holding me back. And he unbuckles the parachute and he throws it off. And that's just what David did. All that was designed for his safety, he unbuckled and he threw it off. He talks about his sin. And when he addresses his sin, he's talking about that which is a deviation from that which is well-pleasing to God. It's as what we describe in, in our, our New Testament understanding. It is missing the mark of what God intends. It is defined elsewhere as that which is lawlessness. He talks about his iniquity there in verse 2. And now he brings into the picture his perversion, his deviation from a standard of righteousness. And then he introduces the idea of deceit. And the deceit is something that is still actively going on because he is withholding the recognition of his son openly before his God and he is essentially covering this sin in such a way that in his mind, maybe God doesn't see this. Maybe I've gotten away with something here, but he knows he hasn't. He knows that God sees this. And yet... In his foolishness, he holds on to this deceit. And so David says, here's what happened. My transgression, my sin, my iniquity, my deceit. And that brought upon him a curse. 
and the curse that it brought upon him was characterized by a variety of different things because of what he says at the beginning of verse 3. When I kept silent, I held all of this in. I'm not going to admit to God what I've done. I'm not going to open before him my adultery, my murder, my perversion. When I kept silent. And now he tells us the characteristics of those things that hit a person whose life is out of tune with God and is not dealing with things the way God intended. Look at what he says. When I kept silent, my bones grew old. He's talking about physical pain. He's talking about the anguish that's that's reaching into his body and he says this as he goes on he says through my groaning all the day long now we wouldn't know a whole lot about that physical distress that he's experiencing if he had not said about my groaning that I'm experiencing the reason that word becomes so important is because it's descriptive of a tremendous amount of physical pain. I'd like you to turn with me to two other Psalms. Both of them are relatively close by, so you'll be able to get to them quickly. Turn with me, if you will, please, to Psalm chapter 38. Just a couple pages back in your Bibles. And in Psalm chapter 38, listen to what it says in these first eight verses. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled, I am bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. Now listen. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. When we read Psalm 38, and we transport that understanding back into Psalm 32, we begin to get an idea of the kind of suffering that David is going through. You know, we often focus on the sin that David committed, and probably for about a year, I would say at least a year, he is going through this incredible pressure of the Lord's hand being upon him because of his sin. And he is dealing with a conscience that is overridden with guilt. And he is experiencing this pain. It, you know, it would really be interesting to see if his physical countenance changed during that period. Have you ever noticed how people who are going through a struggle with sin literally change physically? 
And if the period goes on long enough, they begin to lose weight, they become gaunt, the eyes become ashen. They're, they're just incredible physical reactions and responses that take place to a guilty conscience. But if you would like to see in more detail what it is to be so pressured, so physically incapacitated that you groan, turn back to Psalm 22. When I said Psalm 22, some of you will immediately recognize that this is a psalm that was a prophetic psalm that talked about the crucifixion of Christ. It is a psalm that describes hundreds of years before his crucifixion what Christ would suffer on the cross. As you read through this psalm, you see the description. And by the way, the reference that is made here is used by the Lord himself as he's crying out from the cross. And look at what he says in the very first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning. Do you understand what Christ is describing? As he's hanging on the cross, he's talking about the incredible suffering that he's going through. And David uses the same terminology to describe the experience of his life as he's under the pressure of God's convicting power for the the reality of his sin and of his failures. So physically, he is suffering. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through all my groaning all the day long. And then he says this. I was also suffering spiritually because this groaning went down into the depths of my heart and it was boiling away. And what had happened was I realized that spiritually, I had lost the most important thing of life. Turn with me back to Psalm chapter 51, where David describes what he lost and was afraid of losing. In Psalm chapter 51, he tells us this. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now listen to what he is afraid of. In verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. What David is expressing here is a unique reality that was experienced by the kings of Israel and by others who have been called to specific tasks to accomplish for the Lord. People uh, uh, that were involved in the building of the the, uh, tabernacle and uh, making all of the accoutrements for that. The people that were involved in the building of the temple. They were given a special relationship with the Lord by the presence of his Holy Spirit being within them. Now let me explain something here. Prior to the ascension of Christ after his crucifixion and resurrection, prior to that, the Spirit of God worked in people. There's no question. 
but there was a uniqueness about the work that would follow after Christ's crucifixion and ascension into heaven because he said, when I ascend, I will send the Holy Spirit. What's he saying? There's going to be a unique relationship that believers in Christ will have because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And here's what it is for believers today. The moment we put our faith and trust in Christ as our Savior, the Spirit of God takes up residence within us. Paul expressed this when he wrote to the Corinthians. And he said, don't you know that the Spirit of God is dwelling within you? And in one case, he made reference to the church itself. But in the other reference, he talked about the personal experience of the Spirit of God being within us. The Spirit of God becomes the seal that guarantees our salvation. And so, clearly the Bible teaches that a person who is sealed by the Holy Spirit cannot lose his or her salvation. It is a gift of God. It is a placement into the body of Christ that will never be removed. David was not worried about him losing his salvation. What he is worried about is this. In the day in which David lived, the Spirit of God would come in a special way to give enabling power to people who were called to perform special tasks for the Lord. It was not a permanent indwelling as it is today for followers of Christ. David saw the Spirit of God depart from a guy by the name of Saul the king that preceded him. Saul lost the enabling power of the Holy Spirit when he rebelled against God's way, when he acted in the place of a priest, which he was not supposed to do, and he took upon himself responsibilities spiritually that were not his to take. David saw the Spirit of God depart from Saul, and he saw what happened to Saul. Saul became a a crazy man, kept trying to kill David, and ultimately died in battle himself. Here's David. If that happened to Saul, this could happen to me. Oh, God, take not your Spirit from me. I can't do what you've called me to do. I can't be the person you want me to be unless your spirit gives me enabling power. What David prayed is a prayer that you and I need never pray. That's what I want you to understand. There is a difference here. The Spirit of God will never be taken from those who are God's children. We are secure in Christ. And it's not because of us. By the way, it's not because of us that we came to Christ anyway. It's what he did. And when we came to Christ, if you have, then your sins, all of them, have been forgiven. And by the way, that would include adultery. It would include murder. It would include every possible sin you can think of. They have been forgiven judicially because of the blood of Christ, and we stand before the judge, clothed in the righteousness of his Son, never have that righteousness taken away, because it wasn't ours to begin with. It was imputed to us. It was given to us by the, the grace of God freely. But for David... I can't be the king unless you give me special power by your spirit. Oh, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Do you understand what I'm saying here? This is really important that we understand this. 
Because what David prayed in Psalm 51, much of which we can identify with, but there are certain things that do not follow for us today that followed for David. David was afraid the Spirit of God would leave him and he would no longer have the capability to function as the king of Israel the way he was to function. And then he said this, and, and here is something we do have to deal with. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. You know what? When you're, when you're dealing with sin, the joy is gone, isn't it? It's, it's just not there. And, 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 you know, people can see it. Did, did you know that? People can see it. But more importantly, God can see it. If a person is dealing with sin in their life, joy just is not there. At least not until the right things are done. And so David now, under this incredible pressure, understanding the extent to which he has been taken in these sinful behaviors, understands this isn't going to go away until I deal with it. You see, it was totally unrelenting. Notice verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David would wake up in the morning. His stomach would jump. Oh. oh, what I did. I can't believe I did that. I took another man's wife. I put that man to death. Let me get, a, let, let me get busy. So he'd start doing the things that a king does. Go here. Do this. Take care of that. Okay, another day's gone. I'll lay down and now I'll sleep. What did I do? I killed a man. I committed adultery. Oh, how can I do that? Day and night. Day and night. Day and night. It does not go away. Until he finds the cure. And the cure comes... Let's look at it first in a negative way. Let, let's look at this, how it didn't come. It didn't come because he was suffering. There are some people who believe, you know what, I can get over my sin once I've suffered enough. Because they have this idea that because of our sin, we have to be punished. We have to go through the process of paying for our sin. And that's an idea that is contrary to what the scriptures teach. The scriptures do teach that God will discipline those he loves and he will bring this pressure upon a person who is walking in disobedience until they deal with their sin the right way. But you don't deal with your son just because you're suffering. Do you ever, you ever see those guys in the Philippines around Easter time? Uh, where they, they take whips and they walk through the streets of Manila and the other cities in the Philippines and they whip themselves until the blood is pouring down their backs? Do you know who I'm talking about here? They, and then they literally have themselves nailed to crosses. 
they believe that by suffering that way, they are paying for their sin. What a disgrace. What an affront to the sacrifice of Christ. How dare you think you can pay for your sins? You can't pay for your sins. You're not good enough. Only Christ can pay for our sins. And to, to think for a moment that you can take care of it yourself, that is calling God a liar. I don't know that there's a worse sin than that. Murder isn't that bad. Adultery isn't that bad. Calling God a liar. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We think we can pay for it ourselves? David found out you can't deal with it just because you've suffered. He can't deal with it by, by making amends. Sometimes people think, well, you know what? If I go back and I just try to amend the things that I've done. You know what he did? He married Bathsheba. Isn't that a great thing? She's now a widow. You know what I'll do? I'll take her under my wing and I'll marry her. Oh, and that baby that she conceived by me? I'm going to take care of that baby. I'm going to welcome that baby into my home and I'm going to take good care of it. What he doesn't understand, though, is when Nathan the prophet came to him and told him the story about the little lamb, I'm not going to take time to go into that, but Nathan tells David this story about a little lamb and David gets so mad because of this rich guy that took the poor man's lamb and killed it to eat with friends at a big banquet and David says, that man shall die. This little old crinkled up prophet walks up to him and puts his finger in his face and he says, you're the man. You're the man. David finally broke. And David's response is now what brings the forgiveness. Look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity have I not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David finally deals with this the right way. He takes full responsibility for what he has done. Lord, I did it. Everything you have said, I acknowledge. I committed adultery. I killed a man. I have tried to hide my sin. But now the only relief I will find is when I agree with you and I confess openly what I have done. And so David comes and he expresses this without holding anything back. And he comes, as the Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 51, with a broken heart and with a contrite spirit and with absolutely full disclosure. He didn't hold anything back. Well, Lord, you know, uh, men will be men. You know, we get the fooling around. 
That's what men do. No, that's sin. There is no excuse. And it's not until people say, God, what you have said is sin is exactly what I'm saying is sin. And then the, the writer of Proverbs said this, Whoso confesses and forsakes his sin shall have mercy. I love the way a guy by the name of um, A.F. Kirkpatrick, I don't know him well, but I love this quote. Not until, men, not until man ceases to hide his sin will it be hidden from God. Is that not a great line? The moment you open it up before God and you acknowledge it and you confess it with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and you agree with God, everything I did was wrong, then his eyes go close to that sin. How do we know? Because of the release that was brought about as a result of this. Look at what David said in those first two verses again. He says, Blessed is the man, or blessed is he, whose transgression is forgiven. In other words, the burden has been lifted off. Years ago, I was on a, um, a camping trip into Estes Park out in Colorado. And it was a several-day trip. We, we were going up in through the mountains, and we were camping out in the mountains. And it was a college and career group from the church that I was attending. And so there was, there was a bunch of us. And uh, we, we had to pack everything in that we were going to have on the trip. We had to have our tents. We had to have our sleeping gear. We had to have our food. We had to have our, our drinking water. We had to have everything that would be required. And the packs were heavy. And you start up on this, this trail, and little by little, as you'd eat food, the, the pack would get a little bit lighter. But where we're at, up in the mountains, um, you know, we're, we're college-age guys and gals. It was a, a mixed group. Pardon me? What's that? Yeah, I know, girls were there too. Isn't that what I just said? Yeah, girls were there too. My wife was there. She wasn't my wife yet. Uh, but we had a guy that was on the trip that was a pastor who said he would perform our marriage up there if we wanted to. No, 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 no. Somebody who shall remain unnamed got one of the backpacks of another guy that was in the group and while the guy wasn't looking, took a big rock and stuck it into the back of his backpack. So the rest of the way, he's, he's oh, whoever did that was just an awful, awful person. And this poor guy is carrying this extra weight until we said, hey, Matt, check your backpack. And he takes the backpack and he opens it and there's this big rock sitting in this thing. And he pulls it out. Needless to say, from that point on, he felt free. David just said this. When I opened up and confessed my sin, the weight was gone. All that I was suffering 
has been relieved. He says, whose sin is covered. In other words, now the judge no longer looks upon the sin. Here's another one of the differences between then and now. Prior to the sacrifice of Christ, sin could only be covered. It could be hidden from the eyes of an all-wise judge. But once Christ died for our sins, the sins are cleansed. They're not covered anymore. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So David, opening up about his sin, comes down to the third element. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute, does not count on his account iniquity. Notice how he says down there in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But notice he doesn't say the word deceit. The word's not there. It shouldn't be there because the deceit is not over. Do you get that? He's not being deceitful anymore. He's not hiding it. Now it's all out in the open. So the transgression, the sin, the iniquity is no longer under the umbrella of the deceit. The deceit has left. Everything has been opened. And what does David find? David finds that because of that, he has experienced the freedom of forgiveness. Folks, I don't have time to go into all the rest of this. Uh, for the outline, if you want to write this down, he was relieved from the pressure of his sin. He was relieved from the urgency of his sin. Notice what he says down here in verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time you may be found. Do you get that? There comes a point... Where God says, here's the line. You cross that line, I'm bringing you home. Do you understand that? People pray with sin, and they think, oh, you know what? God's merciful, and everything will be okay. No, the wages of sin is death. The only reason you don't die when you sin is because God is merciful. But there comes a point when he says, that's it. My mercy ends right here. And David says, I'll confess my sin while there's still time because I could step over that line and it's all over. So it's timely. You don't mess with your sin. You don't hang on to it. You don't think it's going to go away. You don't try to justify it. You deal with it openly and guess what happens? God forgives and he gives freedom and he, and he allows you to go on to serve him because he goes on to say this, the danger of that sin has now ceased because as you look down at verse 7, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And then David says, now I'm back on track. For a year I've been messing around and it has been awful. And now I'm back on track. Now I can follow the Lord's direction. I'm free to go his way. As he says here in uh, verse well, let me, let me, you all know this. Psalm 23, 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Make me lie down in green pastures, lead me beside the still waters, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David's back in the path of righteousness. You keep hiding your sin, you're not on that path. Do you, do you get that? You're not on that path. Now David says, I'm back on the path. And here's what I know. I can go your way, and I can go your way with absolute confidence. Notice what he says down there in verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Folks, I would love to say more to you about this, but I think you all know where we're heading with this and what we're concluding with. And here's the deal. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're still going to commit acts of sin. You can't continue with sin as a practice in your life. Otherwise, you are not a believer. It's just that simple. If you can just keep on sinning and nothing troubles you and, and nothing happens, well, you're not one of God's children. And you need to come to Christ. You need to trust Him as your Savior. But if you're a believer and you have committed acts of sin and you are feeling the pressure of that sin, and you understand that it is God's hand that's upon you, I can tell you this right now. You can't escape that. But you can deal with it. And you acknowledge it openly before God. You don't hide any of it. You say, Lord, here is what I have done. I have violated your holiness and I acknowledge to you that my sin is what has brought me to this place. I open it up before you. I take full responsibility. I admit to everything that I know I've done. And I receive forgiveness and freedom and direction. And I don't have to be carrying that rock around anymore. Is that not good? Is that not great? Let's stand. Father, thank you for the forgiveness of sin that has been provided through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And by your grace, I pray that you would draw every person in this auditorium who does not know Christ as their Savior, to him. I pray for those of us who know Christ that when sin enters our lives, we would deal with it the right way and enjoy the freedom that you give and have returned to us the joy of thy salvation. Amen. God bless.